Fitness Podcast with Alison Crogan, Carissa Lee, and I'm Robert Reed. Today we're talking about our major cultural institutions and the systemic drag and entropic decay that plagues them. Oh, wow. We're going to start with <laughs> Terra Nullius, the film made by Soda Jerk, and the controversy surrounding the in-potter's decision to disassociate themselves from it. Alison, you're probably going to want to tell us about that and give us some background to it. Well, as many of you may know already, Acme is showing a film that's a kind of mashup of all sorts of popular culture things colliding with a whole lot of political comment, which was partly commissioned by the Ian Potter Foundation, which is a, a very important private philanthropist. And the day before it premiered at Acme, where it is playing until July the 1st, the Ian Potter Foundation announced that they wished to be dissociated from all marketing with Terra Nullius, which is a pretty amazing thing for a commissioner to say. Among other things, they said that this film is un-Australian and basically too controversial for, I guess, their brand to be associated with. We're not really going to talk about the film, but... but, None of us have seen it yet. But we all want to. But what it does suggest is a whole lot of quite disturbing things about what private philanthropy might mean for artistic expression, for change in our institutions, how change might be resisted, even though it's absolutely necessary that change happens for any kind of healthy culture, and also raises questions about the whole kind of thing that's been happening over the last at least decade, moving emphasis away from funding the arts from state funding towards private funding. And perhaps that's just as problematic as state funding. People talk about the kinds of censorships that may exist with state funding, but nobody talks about the kinds of suppressions that happen with private funding where you have companies and corporate brands wanting to associate themselves with the prestige of art. So we're just going to talk generally about those things today, I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, Chris has got things to say. Rob has lots to say. <laughs> As always. <laughs> As always. So basically, is it all broken? Well, yes. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> okay, end like, of discussion. Yeah, done. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Cool. Well, as a matter of fact, that's kind of the way the discussions are going at the moment. Yeah. So not so much in re- reaction to the film, because I'm not as across that, but with the Philip Parsons lecture from Nick Schlieper, there is a lot of recognition that, yeah, okay, the system isn't working. Stuff is broken. It's not... Ab- but there's a lot of, particularly with the Schlieper at least, and a couple of the others that I read, um, there's a lot of kind of, this thing's broken, and throwing your hands up in the air to go, but who knows how to fix it? The only way to fix it is more government funding, which is kind of how we got here in the first place. So around and around we go, which, and I was saying this earlier to you guys, was that for me that's about what's possible here being limited by our cultural expectations of what theatre is meant to be. You can't mm. see the um, the inverted talking marks I did with my fingers. <laughs> um, yes, it is a radio show. Though. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. <laughs> yeah. But, yeah, that kind of it, – it, a lot of what's possible and the solutions to some of the problems we're talking about here I think exist outside the current structure of how we deliver culture. I mean, what do you, how do you find that, Carissa? Um, I don't know. I think it's oh, – there's um, a bit of an idea that – yeah, like you were saying about assumptions of what culture is and all that kind of stuff. Um, I think that the assumptions tend to be kind of outdated in particular when it comes like when it comes to staging theatre, a lot of the time there is this idea of, oh yeah, well we're just gonna have one cultural thing. I mean, with regards to indigenous theatre in my opinion. But yeah, that's what I've sort of noticed as of late. Yeah, if it doesn't fit this kind of 
pigeonholed idea of what is appropriate culture, then it just is thrown out the window like with Terranalia. So they're like, oh, this isn't necessarily a user-friendly way of viewing these things. And yet, you know, certain TV programs are allowed to say that, uh, you know, children can be taken and that's completely acceptable. But uh, that's another discussion for another time. (laughs) This is why I don't watch TV. Oh, yeah. Good move. Good move, yeah. 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 Oh, it's just a thing on Sunrise. Oh, that thing. Yeah. Oh, God, yeah. It's Yeah, it's just bizarre that this sort of stuff, like the media is completely happy with that sort of narrative taking place because it's an age-old thing of, oh, you know, there's a certain idea of what culture means, particularly with the idea of other. Mm-hmm. Then, But then if something new comes along and they're fighting back, it's it's almost like, oh, it's not, it's not great for audiences. No one wants to see that. So, yeah. But when they say no one, I mean, there's so many instances. There was a thing, the Tate Britain, I think, not so long ago, they had a particular black artist whose name sadly escapes me because I only just remembered this, but they programmed them for a talk and put it in a tiny, tiny room in Tate Modern, which obviously is overwhelmingly Eurocentric and overwhelmingly white. And, I mean, I think they've got three Australians represented, if that, in the whole collection of modern art. And so they programmed this particular artist in a very small room and then were staggered when hundreds of people turned up because they had no idea there was this audience out there who happened to be black, mainly, yeah, yeah. who loved this person's work because yeah. the networks only exist within their very inward-looking, um, what they already know. People yeah. aren't thinking outside those par- They had to move the talk at least twice. Yeah, what do you guys think with this like I've been finding in a lot of my reading and whatnot with my research is that Australia like in the theatre industry in particular seems to be a little bit scared of having its own identity because we're so you know with in comparison to other countries we're babies we're such a new country and having our own identity is still something we're trying to find a little bit um so you know programming and funding is kind of reflecting that as well it's easier to have you know English plays or what the idea of subscribers want to see aren't necessarily new Australian plays, but stuff that we've seen over and over again that's more international. We're trying to sort of mimic other cultures. Like, do you guys reckon? Well, it's very complex because the interesting thing is that new Australian plays are actually really popular. Mm. People like going to see new Australian plays. Yeah, I mean, you look at the Mole House and they're putting on yeah. some really great stuff and MTC is stepping up and it's it's so strange that there isn't more and more of that happening. But, but there is this weird colonial kind of hangover that we have here and it is about, you know, particular nostalgias for Britain but also yeah. America. Yeah. And, um, and that reflects, I guess, the class and race structure of the people who are making decisions about this stuff and the kind of things they they think they want to see and which are then kind of projected onto the audiences they imagine because the whole concept of an audience is kind of imaginary anyway. Like who knows, you know, you can sit in an audience, happens to me all the time, you know, and something is shown you and I can have an extreme reaction of I can't bear this or I love this and the person next to me can be totally indifferent or, Mm. uh, you know, feel exact. I mean, how can you predict what an audience is going to respond to when it's made up of a whole bunch of individuals who are coming from, yeah. you know, a whole range of backgrounds. So people make assumptions and then limit yeah. the audience. It's a terrible approach, I think, to um, making art and particularly live performance art 
that is um, sort of hampered by the notion of one or two people at the top who can make the decisions and guess what that whole audience wants. There should be no guessing of what an audience wants. If you're actually connected to your community, you should know what your audience wants because it's your community, right? Like if you're actually having a conversation with them, it's not about, oh, well, we picked this thing to guess because we think everybody's going to love it. It's more about, well, we picked this thing because it's part of the conversation we're already having with you. But I was going to read out a quote from Ralph Myers' Philip Parsons lecture from 2014, because I'm curious to see how you guys react to it, particularly in given context of this, what we're talking about. He describes the job of an artistic director, saying, an artistic director is the artistic head of a performing arts company or festival. They're responsible for making artistic decisions, things like choosing repertoire, commissioning new works, hiring artists, and so on. They're essentially there to exercise taste, to say what is hot, who is good, what is going to work, and then to work with those people to make great things happen, whether it be dance or music or theatre. What do we think of that? He kind of makes it sound like it's one person's job. Doesn't he, though? Yeah. yeah. Um, to say who's hot, who's in, who's yeah. not. Yeah. There's a Tastemakers, gatekeepers. Yeah. Um, yeah, like... There's a platform paper that Wes Enoch wrote talking about, um, it says, take me to your leader. It's mm. a, a um, the, I think it's something about um, cultural leadership and he, the idea of a cultural leader as opposed to... Um, like a tastemaker. A tastemaker, yeah. Mm. It's a, a cultural leader is someone who who kind of brings a posse with them in a way. Like they have people that they advise, they they talk to their mob really and they they are able to identify that some people know bits and pieces of what's needed in programming or, you know, in any aspect of the arts. Like there's stuff that needs to be kind of available to everyone, the more diverse way of doing it. Mm. Whereas, yeah, he old mate made it sound like it was just one person's job to be doing that. Isn't that part of the whole kind of paradigm of genius, mm. which is always white and male, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> and a relatively and, and new idea. It's a romantic it's, idea. It's a romantic idea. I mean, yeah, it's, it's not it's not actually a traditional idea of mm. people who like tradition. Mm. It's it's a modern idea and it's, it is about the solitary genius, mm. you know, revolving things in his skull and thinking about the world and all of that stuff, which was always a lie in the first place. Mm. Like nobody ever makes art in isolation mm. nobody and i think and, that idea yeah uh, i think that idea serves to um uh, reinforce the notion of a kind of uh, monoculture yes because i've made this play everyone's going to like it or i've found this play it in uh, you know the royal court everyone's going to like it whenever i hear everyone thinks x or everyone thinks y i'm like really everyone or just everyone who looks and acts and knows the things you do. Yeah. 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 Yeah, it's almost like um this idea of a pre-framed notion like you come in there having this idea of what classical theater is and if it ticks those boxes you're like yes that was pleasant that's a that's a good night at the theater but then if someone isn't necessarily that well read in that kind of theater they're just like oh what okay he's he's <laughs> yeah. talking real weird now okay all right and then you got to i guess try and cater to everybody you got have different ways of presenting these things or invite people in like um i remember taking joshua who's my oldest son when he was about 11 to shakespeare and it was so boring and he made me stay for the whole show it went on for hours because you know he's a, a completionist and at the end, I was like, oh, I felt so bad. I was like, this is terrible. Nobody should be introduced to Shakespeare through this kind of ordeal. So I went and bought the Ian McKellen, Richard III movie. And, you know, and he loved it. 
love it because it's, you know, a fabulous introduction to Shakespeare to a boy. You know, it's exciting. It's not obscure because Shakespeare is not obscure and it's got some fabulous acting. And I think one of the things that it allows you to do as a child, and this is why I love Shakespeare as a child, is just enjoy the language, you know, like, which isn't scary. It isn't, it's, you know, like I think people mix up marketing and artistic leadership and these things are so mixed up now that a successful artistic leadership is defined in terms of the success of its marketing. That's one of the problems. There are so many problems that we're talking about here. And marketing is so based on really complex things about demographics and, you know, Facebook likes. You know, there's been all the stuff about Facebook. I mean, all of this stuff feeds into it and people using sophisticated techniques to try and target their audiences some of which are mildly successful, but most of which to me seem to be predicated on things that for the most part are really irrelevant to the kind of experience that people have or want to have when art is actually meaningful. And so you can end up with art that kind of, yeah, ticks all the marketing boxes, but actually is meaningless. So it fills kind of the art-shaped vacuum we feel we ought to have without actually generating any kind of energy or real excitement, you know. I mean, I I just had this experience last night where I went to see Abigail's party at the MTC where I'm sure I was sitting there through the whole show with kind of a a look of my jaw half open and disbelief on my face, wondering what the series of decisions was that led to this particular piece of art that was so wrong-headed and you could kind of see it, and they're marketing decisions. Whereas I went and saw Venus in Fur at 45 Downstairs, an independent production obviously made with about $2, and that is a main stage play. It's a play written for main stages. It's a Tony Award-winning play done by a couple of really good young actors by an independent company, done really well, directed really well by Kirsten von Bibra, and, and I was sitting there watching it going, why aren't I seeing this kind of energy and this kind of intelligence and this kind of attention to detail at the MTC because isn't that what is supposed to be doing, this kind of actually mainstream theatre? I mean, that's what its actual brief is, but um, this is without even critiquing the brief. So there's something really wildly wrong in how all these decisions are reached and there's something that gets in the way all the time, let alone... You know that part of it is insecurity, that all arts organisations feel under attack. We're in a culture that's enormously hostile, or a political culture, I should say, has been over the last, you know, through Labour and Liberal governments, at best indifferent and at worst actively hostile to the idea of what the arts might represent as part of the discourse. So people become conservative, they become fearful, they don't make statements, they don't take risks. We all know that happens. But what happens and what I'm seeing is not even the risks they're supposed to take. You know, risks, I'm doing the quotey thing now, risks that are so minimal, the risk of actually making some good art. And that's just talking about the conventional paradigm of good theatre, which is as we know, intensely problematic, Eurocentric, and it's middle class, it excludes an enormous amount of people. So before we even get to talking about, you know, how do we address those systemic problems, the thing that has the systemic problems has got problems from all sides. Mm. 
And we're all talking about it. Like, it's not like people aren't talking about these problems. Well, and so this is sort of what I mean by being constrained by the cultural assumptions yeah. of what good theatre is. Yes. Because, and this was inspired by the Nick Schlieper, Philip Parsons lecture, which is the 2017 one that's just come out. And he's talking about, well, what do we do? What kind of theatre are we going to make? And what kind of community and industry are we going to have in the era post-funding? Because that is an era that is coming if it has not already started, which is his, his argument. And I don't disagree with any of those kind of statements he makes. In fact, he makes some really kind of opposite observations about the Ozco's statistics around yep. Australian participation in the arts. Yep. Um, and he sort of pulls those apart to show them for the fabricated numbers they are. Well, not fabricated, but let's call them massaged. Yeah. <laughs> well-intentioned. Yeah, well-intentioned. They are trying to be able to, to be honest, they are trying to go, well, look, Australians do engage with the arts, but, yeah, when you drill into it and go, mm, yeah, but theatre and dance is only 30% according to Ozco and Schlieper actually makes the point of going, some people think it's less than 10%. I'm like, that's very, very bad. Yeah. Less yeah. than 10% is very, very bad. And it, it's about that 10% being the people who can get to the theatre, who the theatre is constructed for, who the system of how decisions get made mm. benefits. And so those, of course, are the people who go. And there's a very small population of that. Yeah. And the reason, my, my issue with and I'm going to write a thing about this, so look for it on our supporters section. Once you've Basically, once you've paid your money, you get these essays. <laughs> um, and uh, But I want to look at how those ideas are right, but he can't think outside of the government funding model. Or if you're going to do away with the government funding model, the only possible thing we could do is go for private funding. Mm. And everyone seems really reticent and hesitant to say, actually, we maybe could design this and build this so it can survive not solely off box office, of course, because that's a really bad mistake to have one income, but predominantly off box office because there are so many poor people out there who are clearly not going. Yes. I, you know, the thing is, Rob, that even like in America, say, there's that famous story about the same Philip. system. Yes. No, they have a way, way lower levels of public funding than we do. Oh, yeah, but the system, and the structure is the same. Yes and no. It's, it's a little bit different. But the famous story of Philip Glass with um, Einstein on the beach, mm. which is an amazing work of art, whatever you think of it. It's just an amazing, insanely extravagant, extraordinary piece of work and obviously a classic of the modern canon. And Philip Glass funded that himself mm. with the company because there was no funding. It was a staggering success. It did worldwide global tours. It sold out everywhere it went because, you know, this was the thing. And he was still paying it off years and years later. Mm. Yeah. Years and years later, working as a taxi driver and as a washing machine repairist, I think that's, those were his jobs. So what happens if art doesn't get subsidised, artists subsidise it? This Isn't is that what, the this case is, always, though? Hasn't that always uh, been the case? It's always been the case, but is it the right case? I mean, I'm I'm absolutely, given all the bad sort of choices, yes, obviously artists would prefer to be subsidised, but something like Einstein on the Beach, something huge and ambitious like that is actually never going to make its money back because it doesn't matter how successful it is, it is still going to lose money. If you want to be that ambitious and that big, it is going to lose money. Mm. And so basically saying there's no subsidies is the same as saying, well, that kind of work can't happen. And maybe that is the case. Maybe maybe that kind of work isn't what the future of performance can be. But it's, I think I think that, that's kind of sad. Except that it got made and he paid for it himself. Yeah, yeah I know. So it did happen, even without the funding. Up to a point. I mean, well, other people made money, but you know, yeah, like of it's it's kind but then of as, as a thing it's gets all bigger, very it attracts that stuff. It's all very vexed.
And I personally think there are no satisfactory answers. And I also defend the right of art to have very small audiences. I think that's really important. Micro audiences really matter. Obviously, I say that as a poet. You know, we're a best-selling author of sales 500 copies. But that matters. Yeah, yeah. So I think state funding is, you know, the least problematic of a number of choices. And I, I, I would always fight for state funding, mm. good state funding, independent and autonomous state funding, which is what's being chipped away here. And it's not very much public money. Mm. It is the oh, most yes, accountable yeah. public money we have. And when you look at where public money actually goes, funding of the arts in particular and culture in general is actually a very small part. Mm. In fact, Sleeper makes the, the point of... Purse. Of uh, noting with the majors that some of them have dropped from in ten years or so, fifteen years, from forty percent of their funding down to like six percent of their funding. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it does mean effectively what's happened is the death of the commercial theatre, mm. which is what you were arguing for effectively, Rob. Is that you know there used to be a really healthy commercial theatre sector within my memory mm. in in mm. the nineties. Um, there was a Universal Theatre in Fitzroy, which put on Beckett. Yeah. Yes, and yes, Universal, yeah. Daniel Keane's plays were on there and yeah, all this yeah. kind of stuff. It with was also co- with comedy shows as well. It was and, a commercial yeah. theatre. Mm. And that died when the state theatre companies started doing the same kind of work. They started doing effectively commercial work. Mm. And obviously they could be more competitive because they were subsidised. And that killed off the commercial theatre sector, which means that now the commercial theatre sector is musicals. Yeah, yeah. That's what it is. Well, so, But I don't necessarily think that what we're arguing for, or at least what I'm arguing for, is a return to that kind of commercial theatre because that's still in the model of one big theatre, one big space, everybody come here. And I don't I, – like, honestly, I feel like that is a model of how culture is delivered that was designed in the 17 and 1800s and does not suit the expanded populations that we have now. Yeah. So I'm going to say this well, in the Well, then Netflix well. maybe is the model. Well, and Netflix is not a terrible <laughs> model necessarily. It's, not, it's also not great. But So it's not necessarily the commercial theatre, the big kind of everybody come to our venue. But I think that we're heading towards – and the last 20 years of independent theatre – I think, has been the re-emergence of the actor-manager model, which is a handful of small companies that go after niche audiences. Mm-hmm. Mm. Um, and that as a distributed model with maybe not so much of a one big central thing but a couple of small mid-range things distributed around, mm. I think would be able to... Some of those theatres are going to do um, musicals. Some of those theatres yeah. are going to do Daniel Keane. Some of those it's a, theater, it's uh, a much know. healthier model. Yeah. A much, I mean, and it invites a... a much bigger diversity of audience. But that happens already, I mean, doesn't yeah. it? You know, like- yeah, well, um, Ilbidgeri Theatre Company here in Melbourne, they're, they're really great with doing that sort of thing where they staged plays in different sort of areas around mm-hmm. the place, like yep. Heart that Lisa Mazza produced. Like it was over in St Albans and then there's going to be over in Geelong and they make it a bit more accessible, I think. Yeah. I think yeah. a lot more theatre companies need to be conscientious of that. Yeah. 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 I mean, the touring circuit's difficult, but, I mean, when the, that whole fight was going on with the Brandis thing, the kind of figures about regional touring and mm. so on, vast figures when you add them up, yeah. like vast audience figures. Yeah. And there's the same sort of networks in the outer suburban uh, regions of Greater Melbourne too. Like I'm convinced yeah. that that kind of inner rural and that outer urban sort of section, mm. there's a whole lot of the population out there that if you took shows out there, they'd go. 
Yeah, definitely. Yeah, but it still leaves the question open of how this is the independent theatre sector, as we know, is subsidised mainly by the sweat and mental Mm. health of artists. Yeah, pretty much, Mm. yeah. Yeah. And I guess, you know, that's just another problematic element of funding because if you want to take them out to these little pockets around the place, that's the kind of thing that needs to be somehow funded and a lot of the time is out of the artist's own pocket. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And I guess the decision that we're kind of coming towards is when government funding is finally gone, the market is going to make a decision on how it moves forward. And we can either control that and be a part of that decision and shape it in a direction that's going to be healthy, or we can all stand back going, oh, but government funding would be better Mm, until the market makes its decisions and we end up with only musicals. Not that there's anything wrong with musicals. That depends on the musical. I suppose that does, yeah. Yeah. I don't know. I, I'm wondering what the excuse is going to be when we do come to that lovely time in the future when government funding is actually good. What is the excuse going to be for not Engaging offering? with the wider audiences. Yeah. yeah. That's what I'm wondering. Yeah. I feel I'm not so sure government funding is on the way out. Oh, yeah. I think it's definitely lowering. Yeah. I'd be very surprised if it completely disappeared. But, but that still leaves open the question, like, given all of this, given this state of, you know, all, all these kinds of problems that we've been kind of skipping over really where does that leave things like the actual representation and the actual structural problems given that independent theater is as prone to these problems as anywhere else it's not a magic answer Mm. where do we begin uninstall reboot (laughs) <laughs> Turn it off and on again. That's my thing. <laughs> well, fundamentally, I say that because I was thinking about this for the last day or so and it kept coming back to going, we, we could fix this. It requires massive structural, infrastructural changes, but it could be done. But are we going to do it? Well, we can't mm. even stop polluting the world enough to stop destroying ourselves. Yeah, so that's I feel true, like yeah. what's going to happen is the system will collapse eventually and we will pick up the pieces and make something from it. Or people would just start doing things like witness. Well, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Do it ourselves. Well, yeah. this is our attempt to be able to take control of the change that's coming, yeah. right? Yeah. Well, not control of the change, but just to Ownership, do something maybe. do something that we believe in. Yeah. Mm. Don't you reckon? And I think it's really helpful, like we were saying just before, you know, the idea of criticism within the theatre isn't necessarily held in high regard with regards to funding and that kind of stuff. But if no one's talking about art, no one's going to go see it. So, mm. yeah. yeah, hopefully we can help. <laughs> All right. Well, that sounds like the end of that. Uh, and now I have a thing I want to say because I wrote an outro as well. This has been The Witness Podcast. You have been listening to Alison Crogan and Carissa Lee. Music and sound by Ben Keenan. I'm Robert Reed. Witness is made possible by the contributions of our amazing supporters. If you haven't already, head over to thewitnessperformance.com site and sign up to receive updates and special supporter-only content.